Hello, hello. I am much excited about the things I'm going to be talking about this time around. Ooh, sometimes I have difficulty sleeping, not because, well, typically I don't have diff difficulty sleeping, but recently, ever since I started this new venture of reading and exploring other areas of science and just curiosities in general, I found that it's it's becoming a more and more disastrous mistake at night when I read because my brain feels like it's exploding with excitement about some of the concepts. Because, I mean, a lot of the things, if you really want to understand something, you you have to be able to sometimes read a sentence over and over and over again and then sometimes sketch it out. And that means that you're not sketching out just nothingness. You're sketching what your brain is understanding in that moment. And as you continue to sketch out and continue to think about something, sometimes eventually you get to a conclusion. You start to understand what a paragraph or a page or a chapter of a book is telling you. And once that happens, uh, I mean, I, I, I can certainly write down considerable amounts of notes, but with that in mind, I get genuinely excited uh, as I'm getting ready to, to, to go to sleep, which is uh, not, not the greatest... Uh, not the greatest outcome because it makes it especially difficult to to fall into the quiet slumber but i will be speaking on that actually in this segment but before we get to that i really want to talk a little bit more physics and more specifically in relation to Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. So Stephen Hawking explains what relativity is. And I will certainly say at the point that I'm recording this, I don't fully understand it yet, but I understand certain aspects. I don't think I fully understand. I believe it's general relativity but I'm going to attempt to explain some of the understanding of special relativity. And I'm also going to cover a concept that I certainly didn't know, but now I have a much greater appreciation for that equation that you've likely heard before called E equals MC squared, because it the way it was described was well put. So I, I think I have a better understanding of what that equation means and how impactful it was and is. So first he describes the speed of light. And we've covered that a number of times at this point. I should know that it's around 186,000 miles per second, not miles per hour, miles per second. But 
the speed of light was initially thought to be, well, infinite. So before this particular event, it was considered to be infinite. So not 186,000 miles per second, but essentially a continuous scale that just continued to rise and rise and rise. And it was in 1676, Ole Romer, yes, I likely butchered that name, discovered that light is not, in fact, infinite, but is, in fact, finite. And this individual, I imagine it's a man because a lot of discoveries back then were biased towards men, unfortunately. I wonder how much we've actually lost out on in the beginning, in the Middle Ages, and even in the science science renaissance and, and the Reformation, how much we lost on by not empowering women uh, and women empowering themselves to to be able to to get into science. And I know many of them did, but a lot of their discoveries were, well, overshadowed in a number of different ways by their male counterparts or just historians in general. But I digress. Anyways, Ole discovered that the speed of light is finite in 1676 because he would observe Jupiter's moons as they disappeared at varying times uh, as they passed behind Jupiter. So you can, you can observe Jupiter from, from uh, Earth, obviously, and I imagine that he used some sort of telescope. This is 1676. I imagine it was uh, far enough along. I don't, I guess Galileo was the, one of the first if not the first with the whole telescope business. So uh, he was before this. So uh, 1676, presumably with the use of a telescope, was able to look out at the heavens, look out at the stars, and look at Jupiter specifically and observe Jupiter. Now, of course, because Earth is on a particular track, it's on a particular orbit around the sun, and Jupiter is on a particular orbit around the sun, uh, they're going to be at different points at different points in the year. So different areas in space, uh, different areas in our solar system at different points in time of the year. And so he observed that the Jupiter's moon disappeared at various times uh, every time it passed behind Jupiter. So this meant two things. One, that light wasn't instantaneous because it moves at a finite speed. Because then suddenly the distance that Earth was from Jupiter suddenly made a difference in terms of his observations. So once you take into consideration time playing a factor on visualization of anything, then therefore something cannot be infinite. It cannot be independent of time. It 
needs to be finite. So he wasn't, I don't think he was able to actually quantify the actual speed of light, but he was based on time. So again, it's 186,000 miles, which is distance per second, which is time. So we are encapsulating this object, this thing, light, as we know, photons from previous uh, discussions. And that is related to time. So he was the first to discover that light, the speed of light is a finite speed. So it will, it moves incredibly quickly, but it is still able to be quantified by time and it is finite. So there is a specific number that's attributed to the speed of light. grab some tea real quick okay so then so that was interesting I mean right there we're learning that the speed of light was not necessarily quantified but just realized I guess that's a good way to put it. Uh, then Hawking talks about James Maxwell, which unified the idea of electricity and magnetism. Um, is, of course, electrical charges exert force on one another, which creates magnetism. And... I suppose this would be pretty easily demonstrated by just taking two magnets and having them be opposed to one another. Well, I guess the same technically negative and negative and trying to place them together. It's incredibly difficult depending on the strength of the magnet. So this led to the unified theory that was coined the electromagnet electromagnetism and Maxwell's theory uh, was explained through the lengths in light, in the wavelengths in light, um, that these forces create waves that are moving at the speed of light. So this magnetism that gets created is, it's almost like taking a, a line and then squishing it on both ends of that line. It creates a, a you know, the, the space has to be occupied, so it creates a wave. And uh, there, of course, and this is something I've spoken on before, but uh, you have particular wavelengths that are visible to our eyes, offering us the light that we see. And then you've got shorter wavelengths, which are ultraviolet and X-rays and gamma rays, and those are typically considered quite dangerous. Well, especially gamma rays and X-rays. And then you've got longer wavelengths, which... I, and I assume I assume that the 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 length of the wavelength, the reason why something is dangerous or not dangerous is because of the interaction that it has with the atoms that make up our body. So I don't remember 
I guess it doesn't matter. But wavelengths are extremely long, millimeters long and longer, uh, that, which lead to radio waves, microwaves, and infrared radiation. And I suppose infrared radiation can still negatively impact us. But radio waves and microwaves don't, as I understand it. And that's because the wavelengths are so large that they don't actually penetrate or they don't, maybe they do penetrate. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I imagine that they don't interact. I think that's probably a good way to put it, that they don't interact with the molecules, which are, which are made up of atoms, uh, of that, that are found on the periodic table. So you need wavelengths that are small enough to be able to interact with these particular atoms. And it seems like that is simply not the case. So shorter wavelengths, which are going to be far, far more compact, uh, those do interact with atoms. And that's what can wreak havoc, uh, causing radiation poisoning and things of that nature. Although, so far, I, my understanding is that radiation is indicative of all wavelengths. So anything that is, if you think of it like a radiating from an object, the sun is radiating various wavelengths. And, well, because of its light, it's all light. So, yeah, that makes sense. So anything that's emitting light is radiating uh, these different wavelengths. Is it more or less, depending on what the light source is? I don't know. But at any rate, when you say that you're exposed to radiation, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's Ne it's, it has a negative consequence because of the reason that I mentioned earlier that longer wavelengths of radiation could potentially have no impact on our body, uh, but because they don't interact with our atoms. Again, keep in mind, this is just how I understand it. But then, of course, the shorter wavelengths being exposed to gamma rays, for example, uh, or x-rays, those, that level of radiation does have a negative impact on our health. And then Hawking goes into relativity. <laughs> and some of this I understand, and some of it I'm still working through, so please bear with me. Uh, I'm not going to go over the stuff that I'm still working through because it seems kind of unfair for me to just sit here for an hour or two and try and figure this out. I'll do that on my own time. Ha! So, time and distance are a matter of relativity and that they are a matter of perspective. I think that makes some sense. And this is something that I've thought about actually when I was a kid even. Uh, not that I understood this. But I, I, I'm always fascinated by perspective and it, and it honestly throws a wrench in a lot of my understanding of things. It makes it where I have a hard time accepting what 
a physicist will tell me or an engineer will tell me or math will tell me. I think that's probably where I don't like math because it's, it's very, it's incredibly structured in that if this equals this, then this will always equal this, you know, thing, it's just very much logic based. And I, while I'm a very logical individual, for some reason, mathematics just don't resonate with me because of this exact concept, this exact concept of, of perspective that we can technically bend our perspective to anything. Perspective is this highly malleable, anything that you can imagine that is immediately part of perspective. Like you could choose to believe something and that could be your perspective. And that, that can certainly lead us towards chaos. And I think that's where mathematics and engineering and physics and even biology and all these STEM, I mean, sciences, technology, engineering, mathematics, give us order and give us a, a track by which we can stick to and therefore be able to create things based off of this foundation, this track that we have, that we've created. But in reality, we do have the ability to have various perspectives you could stick to that track and be highly successful in predicting all these amazing things. And clearly that would be, in a manner of speaking, the correct way to go. And that's how society is built. But in another way, it does seem strange to discount the idea that our brain can, can imagine just something else. I don't know if I'm making any sense. I guess I don't really care because <laughs> when I listen back to this, I think I'm going to understand what I'm saying. But you can imagine like as a child, as a kid, as a complete idiot, when you don't know anything, you can imagine anything like think of Harry Potter. Think of the stories of any fairy tale. Things happen and they're described the way that they happen. And while as you become more educated, you, you block those out, you, you understand that they're fake, that they're not real, that they're not, they're not reality. But in, in reality, they sort of are because they are a manifestation of perspective. Now, are they measurable? Are they consistent? Consistent is a big point here. Are they consistently measurable like mathematics dictates and allow us to build a world around us that is highly sophisticated? No, they're not. But they are different and they are a perspective. It's an intriguing area. I, I'll, I'll leave it there, but it's, it's, it's an intriguing area. Anyways, time and distance are a matter of relativity and that they are a matter of perspective. Time 
certainly is a is a huge one when it comes to to a matter of perspective uh, from kind of an individualistic standpoint all the way up to well any number of different perspectives but I guess some of this is described here which made some sense to me so a good example of this is if you're on a train and you're playing ping pong with someone you're on the train the distance the ball travels is relative to your location so if you're on the train the the ball has moved three feet but if you're off the train and you're looking into the train and it passes by at a hundred miles per hour the ping pong ball from the point you the point someone else struck it with their paddle and it moved the three feet to that person to the person in the train it's only it's moved three feet but to you you watch that entire sequence like it's froze for a second just so you could see it and then continued and then froze again so so you could see it again that ball has technically moved like 300 feet instead of just three feet so that is a a interesting lifelike understanding of perspective so distance is in that way, a matter of perspective. And that's where apparently Einstein had this introduction of relativity through space-time, that they're never fully independent of one another, that if you're moving any distance, depending on how you're looking at that distance, that's going to have time associated with it. And that makes a considerable amount of sense. Uh, we don't know of anything, or at least maybe I should say I don't know of anything, that moves a distance but doesn't have a time attributed to it because it needs to accelerate and then needs to reach its peak speed. And the speed would imply that it has to move and if it has to move, it needs distance wherein it needs to move. Like it, it has a distance that it, you need a certain amount of distance to be able to move. Otherwise, an object is stationary. It's not, there's no distance for it to move. Like you, distance is like the, the, the context that you're applying to an object. And if it has no distance that it needs to travel, then there is no traveling. Hopefully that made some sense. And if it's traveling, then it's going to have time associated with it because it's going to have a rate. How quickly is it moving over, well, how quickly, the word quick is by definition, uh, a rate. So you're moving a particular object across distance, across space. Space is in kind of an enclosed area, some point A to point B, that would be there's, there's space between those two points. So an object is moving across space and it's moving 
you can measure at various points across that space as the object is moving and you'll be able to tell how quickly it's moving and quickly is then time uh, because you want to measure how how far has this object moved across how much time so you can travel 60 miles your car can travel 60 miles per hour that would be a rate that would be how quickly it's moving And then he goes on to describe that we can describe objects a little bit like the example I gave, or I should say that he gave, with being on a train or being off of the train and looking in. The ball, let's say the ball is a planet, and you are on the train, you could think of yourself as the sun. So in that, that tiny enclosure, that, that context that you are applying, you're mentally applying this context of we're only looking at this within the solar system. The Earth can be described in space relative to an object. And I suppose that we typically choose the largest object, which is the sun in the context of our solar system, because it has the greatest gravitational pull. But that context becomes obsolete when you're trying to explain that same object, Earth, and you expand your perspective to the galaxy, suddenly the solar system is minute compared to the galaxy, and suddenly your, your place in the solar system remains, it's still the same, but you would have to collapse your perspective to limit it to just the solar system. But then again, if we expand, we, we expand outwards and have a camera almost and look at the galaxy in front of us, suddenly our perspective has to take into consideration all these different objects that suddenly entered our view. And as they enter our view, we're no longer, we can no longer necessarily describe something based off of the sun. We would have to find something else so that we could figure out distance and time and different coordinates, having uh, three-dimensional coordinates, height, I guess, lateral distance or width and depth, but you need coordinates to be able to figure out where, where that object, in this case, earth is. So, and if you base that off, like if you, if you look at gravity, the gravitational pull of the sun is significant within the context of our solar system. But again, we, we pull ourselves out and we look at the galaxy 
and suddenly the sun is being pulled in a, has a gravita- is being pulled by another gravitational pull which is larger than its gravitational pull so is the earth being pulled by the gravitation or being affected i should say by the gravitational pull of the sun or is the earth being affected indirectly or even maybe even directly by the gravitational pull of the object that is acting on the sun so again the point being that perspective matters tremendously another tea break All right, so I've talked about relativity. Now let's talk a little bit about this E equals MC squared that I mentioned earlier. And you've likely heard of it before. I had heard of it before. It was the description of light, the speed of light. I believe that was it. So, apparently, because the energy of light is so much, the mass needed to produce that energy can be minuscule. And <laughs> this, is, this is a good example of what I was talking about earlier. You look at the math of it, and it makes sense. But sometimes you think about something, and you just like, it's hard to wrap your head around in terms of a concept, but mathematically it makes sense. So it's a really simple equation. E, the letter E equals the letter M times C squared or otherwise C times C where E is energy. So light, light energy in this example, M is mass, so an object. Oh, I'm sorry. I was wrong. E is energy, M is mass, and C is light. I see. Ha. No pun intended. So if C is light, and we've squared it, and the amount of energy so we're trying to find the total amount of energy between mass and light so how much mass is needed to equal a certain amount of energy or how much energy are we going to get out of a particular amount of mass and because we know the amount of energy that light creates I haven't quantified it, but the energy of light, we know the energy that light produces or the, the amount of energy that light has. But we don't know necessarily 
the amount of energy that mass has, depending on the mass. If you plug in the numbers into this equation, so a good example of this is like the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb had X amount of energy. Matter of fact, let's not even use X, let's just use E. Had E amount of energy. I'm using E because I don't actually know the, the number, but a hundred million billion trillion units of energy. And that is equal to a certain amount of mass, which they got from, I suppose, the plutonium and the uranium, times C, which is light. And we know the energy that light has. And square that. I don't actually know why we square it, but I do know that we have a certain amount of energy for light. So the only variable we actually don't know is mass. So retrospectively, measuring the energy from the atomic bomb, when it exploded, you could figure out the amount of mass, the amount of plutonium and the amount of uranium. And I don't actually know what they used to, to create the atomic bomb. So I, it could be one or the other, or it could be neither of those. I don't know but hopefully I'm not completely wrong on that. At any rate, those two elements, those two molecules, those two atoms, I hate, I hate saying that. I hate saying atoms. It's not two atoms. It's many, many millions of atoms that make up an element I, I've had this discussion with my dad. It's, it makes no sense. It, well, it makes sense, but it's just, it's such a weird way to explain things. And nobody in, in any of my chemistry courses ever explained it well. <clears throat> I do hope that once I have a, a better understanding of it, uh, to the point where I can actually teach it, I'll, uh, I'll revisit this, but essentially a certain number of atoms are needed to create mass. I think we can agree on that. So you have a certain amount of atoms that make up mass. Those atoms correspond to a particular uh, element. And those elements in this example are plutonium, uranium. And so we need to know how much of this plutonium uranium leads to multiplied by the energy of light will lead to the amount of energy that explodes out of an atom bomb. And that quantity is minuscule, I believe I wrote down, it's an ounce, one ounce of uranium plutonium 
are necessary to produce the amount of energy with the help of light to create an atom bomb. That's, that's pretty nuts. That's pretty nuts. And the final point is to discuss, <laughs> this is a weird concept, but what would happen if the sun were to randomly disappear? So I've heard, I've heard people talk about what would happen if the sun suddenly disappeared, if it just extinguished. It didn't explode, you ju it just disappeared. We just plucked it right out of our solar system. What would happen? Well, people talk about how it takes eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to the earth. Okay, fair enough. So in eight minutes time, eight minutes after it was plucked out of the solar system, we would still see it for eight minutes. It would still be there even though it's already been plucked out of the solar system. And that's because of, well, what we talked about earlier. The very first thing we talked about, how light has a finite speed. So the translation of information into our eyeballs is limited or dependent, I should say, on the speed of light. And if you're talking about on Earth, that's not a limitation because the speed of light is far and away f way it's just enough it's it's so fast that it's enough not to be a factor but if you're talking about the sun which is so far away that is a factor so someone plucks the sun out of our solar system it's still there for eight minutes however before darkness hits, and that's, that's what most people say, okay, well, eight minutes later, we would be shrouded in darkness, and, well, most likely, I imagine we'd freeze over, uh, or a ton of terrible, drastic, catastrophic things would happen, and uh, we wouldn't exist anymore. But what would actually happen first, before that, is our gravitational pull would suddenly disappear. Our orbit. What are we orbiting? We're orbiting nothing suddenly. So we would quite literally fall out of our own orbit. So we would fall out and, and I imagine eventually we would find the orbit of something else, but I mean, we'd be dead. There's so many things depend on the sun, for one. And secondly, so many things depend on our, our orbit that if we were to fall out of that orbit, we, we'd be dead just on that fact alone. But what would happen to the earth, independent of what happens to humans? Well, I imagine that eventually it would find another orbit or it would crash into something and get obliterated. Uh, which is a strong possibility. 
So I thought that was kind of a cool thought exercise. People talk about how we'd be in darkness in eight minutes. Well, before that, we'd, we'd suffer due to the change in gravity uh, between, or the disappearance of gravity between the sun and earth. All right, so that's where I will leave a brief history of time for this segment. Although, on a quick thing for physics, let me quick uh, grab some tea. For physics, I was still going through a series of documentaries. And in the documentary, they... It was such a foreign concept to me, but, well, let me ask you this. If you drop, if you were to control every variable and drop a bowling ball at the same speed you would drop a feather, which one would hit Earth first? And I think most people would say, the bowling ball because it weighs so much but a physicist would say that they would both hit the earth at the same time they would both hit the ground at the same time now if you test that and that's actually what they do in this documentary which i thought was just so cool because it's the first time i've actually visualized it. i mean you can see pictures and stuff but and you can be told about it and you can get a, a good indication but visualizing it in video form really allows you to see it. So what they did in this documentary is that they, they did the experiment with air present. And of course the bowling ball fell far quicker and hit earth, hit the ground at, you know, before the feathers did considerably earlier. No surprise there because the, the feather was floating down. Okay. However, they have this chamber, I believe it's NASA that uses it. I could be wrong on that, but there's this chamber on planet earth where they suck all the air out, like 99.999% of the air out of this chamber. It takes like six hours or something like that to suck out all the air. And they ran the experiment again. And sure enough, the feather fell at the exact same speed as the bowling ball, which is the first time that you can actually really visualize like what Galileo was saying and what Einstein was saying and a, a bunch of influential physicists and influential just scientific minds in general. So that I thought was, was a really great illustration of what happens and what you read about in textbooks but it's difficult until to, to imagine until you actually see it so i thought I'd, I'd share that that quick bit but uh yeah anyways now allow me to move into an area that i actually know quite a bit about and can talk about 
without necessarily speculating. And that is going back to sleep. I did talk about sleep a little bit last week, but now I'd like to, I've gone further into this book, which I've been really pumped. I mentioned that I was really excited about it and it's been, uh, it's been absolutely worth it so far. I've learned a lot and I hope that I can impart some of that knowledge now to you. So last time we talked about how some individuals wake up uh, really early in the day and they perform better uh, because their circadian rhythm is set up that way. Their just biology is set up so that they get sleepy kind of earlier in the night and then when they give in to that, then they allow themselves to be able to sleep and sleep their full eight hours and then they wake up and then they wake up at like five or six in the morning and they feel energetic and they feel great and that that fits into the narrative of individuals being able to go to work and be highly productive and it really influences everything about their life and yet there are also individuals that have extreme difficulty going to sleep at like 9 p.m and are far better at going to sleep at like midnight or like 1 a.m. And then if they're allowed to sleep till 8 or 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, so later in the morning, that those individuals, if they're allowed to do that, they become just as productive as the individuals who wake up early. So society is set up, so it's it's it screws over the individuals that that have this biological clock that tells them, Hey, you know, you're more destined to be a night owl as they say. So we have to be at work at, you know, nine o'clock and whatnot. And those individuals really suffer because one, their sleep suffers because they don't sleep as long. Their quality of sleep decreases, but they also don't really wake up until 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning. So they're essentially zombies for the first two, three hours of their workday. And then they become more productive. And then the, the, they've wasted half of their workday or a part of their workday. And that's not because they choose to, to waste half their workday. They're not lazy necessarily. Although that's not to say that there aren't lazy people out there. Absolutely there are. But those individuals just... If society could wrap their head around that, having people come in on flexible hours uh, where you would have some overlap where people could obviously communicate effectively, but having flexible hours would lead to a more productive society. So that's where we left off. And if you want to learn more about that, you can check out the last episode. But then the book goes into pilots and jet lag. So talking about jet lag and the negative repercussions of jet lag. So how pilots have a considerably worse time learning, going through the learning process. And not only that, but also recall memory is impeded by jet lag uh, as the neurons 
the brain regions for learning are atrophied or smaller because of, presumably because of jet lag. So anybody who flies a lot, uh, that is a negative consequence because the circadian rhythm is dependent on kind of consistency. So if you fly a lot and you go from place to place to place, uh, your circadian rhythm takes a while for it to adjust to this new place. So especially if you're moving every few days, that constantly leaves a moving target and therefore uh, your circadian rhythm can never fully set up correctly. So you don't get the length of sleep as well as the quality of sleep, which leads to a lot of brain impairments. And apparently there's, of course, increases in other markers like higher blood pressure, greater risk of cancer, things of that nature. And uh, then, and I don't know if I briefly mentioned this last time, but sleep pressure is also not just defined by the circadian rhythm and the release of melatonin and things of that nature, but also by the buildup of adenosine. So adenosine is a molecule that's released by our cells over the day. So at the beginning of the day, your adenosine levels are virtually undetectable. They're minuscule. But over the day... As you go on and on and on with your day, there's essentially, you could think of it like a me- metabolic byproduct that it's just released by the cells. And that apparently has an impact on our brain. It binds uh, our neurons, binds particular areas of the brain and leads to sleepiness. It creates sleep pressure. That's the term that was used. So the balance between the circadian rhythms plus the sleep pressure allow us to sleep at particular points in the night. And that builds up over the day. Then when we go to sleep and we sleep the length of time that we're supposed to, as well as the quality, meaning that you don't wake up every 10 minutes and sit on your phone for 15 minutes or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, There's a number of different definitions for the quality of sleep, but essentially that you're able to cycle through these different, uh, versions of sleep, different uh, iterations. You know what? I'm going to go into it next. So let's just jump into that. So these different iterations of sleep is what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about then is REM sleep and non-REM sleep. If you're familiar with that, that means REM is rapid eye movement. So if you look at a person, if you observe a person who's asleep, they'll have periods of time where their eyes will roll back and forth under their eyelids as if they're like seizing or they're, they're visualizing something and their, their eyeballs are just rotating back and forth. It's kind of a freaky thing to see, but uh, it is, it is really cool. Uh, so I'm going to describe a little bit of what I've learned in, in that regard. So apparently we can still sense our surroundings when we fall asleep, which I think is a, is a really cool concept, uh, that 
but our sensations are blocked at a particular area of our brain called the thalamus. So the thalamus is like the gatekeeper and it, it blocks these sensations, these neural inputs uh, from, you know, touch, smell, hearing, things of that nature. So all of those are still active. You're still sensing, but you're not perceiving because your thalamus is blocking the integration of those sensations into perception. And perception would be a conscious perception. So actually understanding, oh, I'm being touched or I'm smelling something. And this is what I'm smelling. So you're sensing it, the molecules are acting, but you're not perceiving it because it's not getting to, that signal is not getting to your cerebral cortex. So the actual uh, area of your brain where you do your thinking and where you do your reaction and, and uh, those, those kinds of habits, those kinds of uh, actions. So that gets blocked by the thalamus and but if a sensation signal is strong enough like you're you're being stabbed <laughs> uh, then in that situation the sensation signal is so strong that it 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 breaks through this th thalamic barrier this the thalamus's gatekeeping and bursts into the cerebral cortex and allows us to consciously perceive this sensation, which of course wakes us up. Now, another concept that was covered, and I'll get to REM sleep in just a second. I know I said I would talk about that. Another concept that was covered is time dilation, in which the... Con so, if you're consciously aware of time, you don't really think about it, but you are technically conscious of time. So, when you wake up, Later in the day, you understand it's not the same time as it was six hours ago. If you wake up at 7 a.m., you're not thinking at 5 p.m. that it's still 7 a.m. You understand that time is moving uh, over itself. That's kind of a weird way to put it. Time is moving over time. Uh, well, just that time is moving, you know symbolic kind of way. So that's, that's a conscious awareness of time, but that conscious awareness is non-existent when we sleep. However, there is an unconscious self that continues to track time. So even when you're asleep, there's a part of your brain that continues to track time. So when you wake up, you may have some sense of the amount of time that has passed. You may still be surprised when you look at the clock. Oh, I slept for two hours. Oh man, I thought I was just napping for 30 minutes. Uh, but that's because your conscious self wasn't aware of time, but your unconscious self was aware of time. Uh, and one good example of this is REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep. So during REM sleep, your brain is running through the day's events at an extremely slow speed. So whatever you visualize, whatever you've sensed, 
whatever you've perceived when you were conscious that gets played back like like snapshots during REM sleep and it gets played back at an extremely slow speed so that it can integrate the things that you have been exposed to that is too freaking cool so our dreams pass by really quickly they seem like they pass by really quickly but in reality when you think about it it seems like a lot of things happen within a dream but in reality you've only been in this dream state for if they were to quantify it for like 10 minutes but you feel like hours or days have gone by within that 10 minute time span and that's that's kind of this disjunct between our sensation of time, our conscious sensation of time, um, think of like lucid dreaming where you have some level of control over your dreams or you have some conscious awareness of your dreams uh, re relative to the unconscious self where there is an understanding of time. But if that's necessarily translated into the dream, I don't know the answer to that. So going back to this REM sleep, and I'll dive into that a bit more, but is discovered in the 1950s. So they, they measured brain activity in REM sleep, and they find that it's extremely similar to wakefulness. So if you were to measure the brain, the actual electrical activity of your brain when you're awake, uh, hopefully that's now. And if it's not, if you're asleep and you're in REM sleep, I would have difficulty being able to tell the difference because your brain activity would be very similar. It would be curt. It would be short. It would be very frantic, extremely frantic. Uh, and the actual waves would be short as they bounce up and down. So when you measure this brain activity in REM sleep, it is similar to wakefulness, but obviously you're not, you're asleep. And that is in contrast to non-REM sleep. So in REM sleep, what you're doing, what's thought to happen is you're integrating new memories kind of like what I mentioned earlier, integrating that day's events or even maybe a few days worth of events or whatever whatever perception your brain has really plugged into, that gets integrated into your brain. And that's a good reason, a massive reason why sleep is so important when you're studying for an exam. If you study for that entire day, a lot of sleep researchers will say, well, it's not to say that it's wasted if you don't go to sleep, but you need, the, if, if you do sleep, you will recall it much, much better, significantly better, just because you allowed that REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep to integrate these new memories, these new, uh, well, yeah, these new memories into uh, your, your memory bank. Now, non-REM sleep, however, 
is made up of four stages and those four stages really just demonstrate the the depth of sleep so how difficult is it for a person to wake you from this particular sleep so stage four being the heaviest so your your brain cycles oh and and non-REM sleep just so i could finish this thought non-REM sleep is the the kind of cleanup process of old memories so if like the the connections between neurons that were already established but it's kind of a a reprioritization of old memories so you uh, the the neurons will modulate how they interact with one another so that they can uh, essentially restructure long-term memory, memory that's already been around for a while and kind of reintegrate it to figure out uh, what is truly important and what is not so important, kind of things of that nature. And then, of course, in contrast, REM is... Uh, the act, the integration of the new memories that you're, it's not like you have a, f- a finite amount of space necessarily. I don't want you to think that you're, you're losing old memories every time you enter REM sleep to make room for these new memories. That's not exactly how it works, but it's just a remodeling process during non-REM sleep. And during REM sleep, it is the, the strong signals to incorporate new uh, memory. So if you think of your brain kind of like a bottomless pit in a way, so non-REM sleep will continue to remodel that pit. So whatever's already in that pit, but uh, non-REM sleep is, or REM sleep, excuse me, uh, allows for this pipeline of new information into this bottomless pit, which you can access essentially at any time, as long as you have the right triggers. So there's this there's this kind of macro cycle if you think of REM sleep as a micro cycle and non-REM sleep as a micro cycle or a series of micro cycles as it moves from stage four stage three stage two stage one the combination of the two is a macro cycle and this is just a self-definition that i've created uh, just so I can talk about this more succinctly. So the macro cycle, the combination of REM sleep and non-REM sleep cycles through every 90 minutes of sleep. So if you sleep for 90 minutes, you have gone through one complete cycle of non-REM sleep and REM sleep. Of course, does that necessarily mean then that you're done? Like you don't need to sleep anymore. Obviously, we know that's not the case because it needs to go through multiple cycles, multiple macro cycles to end up having complete sleep. And as it's going through these macro cycles, it's prioritizing one over the other, REM sleep over non-REM or non-REM over REM sleep based on what it needs. What does it need to integrate? Uh, Many, many different new thoughts and new ideas and new memories or does it need to restructure some of the the older material that's already there? And that's how it's able to determine which one it's going to spend more, more time in. And once it's satisfied, and along with that, I mean, it's not just remodeling, but once it's also cleared out the adenosine that I mentioned earlier, then your brain, and of course, melatonin, 
levels decrease back down to, to, to basal levels, to low levels, then you have this uh, inability to continue sleep. I mean, people would certainly challenge that. You can certainly still go back to sleep, but uh, you, you feel energized. You feel uh, at maximally awake. You should at least after kind of your sympathetic drive, your nervous system has kind of picked back up and decided to, to, to start, start your day going again. So the first section for the first four hours of sleep, you find that deep non-REM sleep dominates. So kind of the restructuring of the old uh, material. And during the second half of sleep, the, the latter four hours of sleep, as you can guess, REM sleep dominates. And that's not to say that REM sleep doesn't exist during that first four hours. It's just that, let's say, 80% of the sleep within these macro So let's say, let's take a 90-minute macro cycle of the combination of the two, non-REM and REM. Within that 90 minutes, maybe the, your brain will prioritize for 75 minutes, we'll do non-REM sleep. And then for the final 15 minutes or somewhere in there for 15 minutes, it'll do REM sleep. But then if you were to take the that same block of 90 minutes and look at it five hours or six hours, so into that latter four hour window, you would notice that suddenly you would spend 50 minutes or 45 minutes or 60 minutes on REM sleep and spend 30 minutes on non-REM sleep. So you're still getting both. It's just it's just modulating which one it's prioritizing at any given at any given point. And I think I think the f- well, I'll continue on, but this was one of the coolest things that I learned. If you were to measure the brain activity while you're awake, the, and they measure this usually through the frontal cortex, the chatter between the neurons, it's not like they're actually talking with one another, but they are in a biological sense. They're communicating through these neurotransmitters. The chatter between the neurons is so hectic. One neuron is talking to another neuron, but it's also communicating with another neuron. And all these neurons are trying to do millions of different processes at the same time. So there, it's a great example of this is like the, the, the stock market. If you ever, if you've ever seen movies or ever seen some video of the stock market, when people are just yelling at each other, yelling, I, I, to be honest, I have no idea what they're talking about. I, not something I'm educated on yet, but they're yelling at each other. It's like this hectic, there's papers everywhere. There's computers. It's just, it's just chaotic but they're achieving what they need to achieve. Stocks get exchanged. That's 
how your conscious brain is. You may feel relaxed, but your neurons are firing asynchronously. They're firing in every which way. And if you were to measure that, they pop in and out. And it's just like if you were to measure a single neuron, it would fire really weirdly. Like sometimes it'd be firing, sometimes it's not firing. Sometimes it's firing really quickly. Pop, 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 pop. And then other times it's firing very slowly. Pop, 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 pop. You know, it's, it's just, it's asynchronous. And imagine that multiplied billions of times over in your brain, where these neurons are interacting, not just with one other neuron, but many other neurons. So it's multiplied over and over and over and over again. That continues in REM sleep, because again, the, the similarity between REM sleep and wakefulness if you were to measure kind of the total body of the neurons in a particular section of the brain, you would see that. You would see this, this asynchronous chatter between. However, when you enter non-REM sleep, there is a point at the front section of your brain, in the frontal cortex of your brain, there's this origin point that magically appears where a grouping, a small, a tiny grouping of neurons suddenly shift into non-REM sleep and they release a pulse. And this pulse moves, glides across your entire brain and it quiets all the neurons that were chattering with one another. Like a powerful figure entering a room and suddenly the entire room goes silent and this pulse moves across the brain until it reaches the back of the brain and as it does that all the neurons hum together they start singing the same song and it's this pulsating vibrant measurable slow wave of all the neurons synchronously communicating with one another My conscious brain can't fully, I, I can't fully explain what I feel when I, when I learn things like that. That is, I don't have the words to describe it, but I hope I hope you feel what I feel and I hope you understand it's a positive, it's a powerful, positive emotion. That it's just awe inspiring. I think that's, that's where I'll leave that. 
So during non-REM sleep, you go through these slow pulses. And I think I'll leave it after this next, these next two points. So quick further description of REM sleep. So during REM sleep, not only do you get this similarity to wakefulness and not only do you get an integration of new memories and thoughts and things of that nature you also get the integration of emotions so the thalamus will some will not just inhibit sensation but will sometimes allow certain sensations through an alternative pathway and this alternative pathway allows for REM sleep to integrate some of these sensations and some of these emotions that we experience into our memory. So I thought that was, that was really, really cool. And not only that, because we have this sensation or I I suppose I should say at this, at this time, a sort of non-conscious perception of these emotions and the things that we went through. And of course, this is during dreams. Like we have dreams during this stage as well. Our body has to protect us because if it doesn't, we will move. We will react in a, in an unconscious way, completely devoid of consciousness. That part of our brain is still inhibited, but the lower parts of our brain that dictate our unconscious abilities could react, could have this visceral, uncivilized reaction to some of the emotions, some of the memories that we are trying to integrate. Think about post-traumatic stress disorder. Think of going through traumatic experiences. Think of being embarrassed in a particular situation to the point where it, it replays over and over and over in your head. That is being integrated into your brain when you're sleeping during this REM sleep. So imagine having dreams come out of this area of your brain. If your body doesn't protect you, and what I mean by that is shut you down, it needs to cut off the signal from your brain to your body, to your musculature, to your ability to move. Otherwise, you could hurt someone. You could hurt yourself because you could start acting or reacting or enacting the things that you're experiencing throughout your REM sleep, even though without, without your conscious mind there to stop it and say, whoa, whoa, we're not doing that. It's, it's completely free flowing. You're utterly free 
So if your brain didn't immobilize you and make you limp, then there is a possibility, and this is obviously what we see with sleepwalking or yeah, any, any sort of movement that you experience during REM sleep is because your brain hasn't been able to completely cut off that line of communication between the brainstem and your bodily movement, your muscles contracting. That's a scary thought. That's a really scary thought. Well, and on that scary thought, I will leave you here for this segment. I will likely return for another segment wherein I know I'll be talking more about sleep because uh, I can feel myself get m the most excited about that. But I may may talk about some other some other things as well. At any rate, you won't notice this, but till the next segment, which is now. I am back to finish out this week's learnings, the education, and more specifically, to talk some more about sleep. So, I've talked quite a bit about sleep so far. We talked about REM sleep in the last section. Again, you won't really be able to tell if you're listening to this. Uh, what's, you know, what I recorded at one point and what I recorded at a different point. But trust me, last section, we talked a lot about sleep. Uh, but I went further in this book. And a lot of uh, really interesting tidbits of information. For example, sleep predates dinosaurs. Not only does it predate dinosaurs, it also predates vertebrates. So they found this out by looking at uh, ancient worms. So apparently worms, well, as I mentioned last time, a series of different species, all species that are currently on the earth sleep. Now the question is, have all the species that have ever existed on earth sleep? And it seems that at least dating back a hundred million years, there's evidence that sleep was around. Now, if it was necessarily uh, prevalent to all species throughout those hundred million years, that I don't know. But for sure, sleep has been a biological function that we've possessed, we as in just living organisms, have possessed for a hundred million years. So that that tells you how important sleep is. It, it gives you a clue, at least, to tell you how important sleep is. But even beyond that, it 
really should make you wonder, like, why? Why is sleep such a big part of our day-to-day life? And I may have mentioned this before, but you would think that if there was some sort of pressure, some external pressure for us to evolve in a different way, it would be... It would be highly advantageous to decrease the dependence on sleep for us not to be knocked out for seven or eight or nine hours every day. And I wonder if that were a possibility, if it would be possible for us to, to be able to sleep less or to, for us not to sleep at all and still maintain our health and maintain our function and even progress forward from where we are now. So moving on, talking about sleep amount kind of goes to what I was just talking about. Apparently it, it changes wildly between species and you would think that potentially it would increase with brain size or maybe it would increase with brain complexity having more of a frontal cortex. The frontal cortex is the area of the the brain where we do a lot of planning and thinking and things of that nature, which is highly uh, developed or the most developed in humans because, well, (laughs) I guess I don't don't really need to spell it out. But uh, yeah, so you would think that sleep would increase or be correlated with, directly correlated, positively correlated with this development of the brain, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, Apparently the longest sleeping species, 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 is the brown bat, a bat, and it sleeps for 19 hours a day. That's the record. In terms of what's on the extreme on the other end, the giraffe only sleeps four hours a day. It's just, it's all over the place. Like, and we're somewhere around eight hours, you know, people of course change that, but that's, that's, it's so strange. It's so weird. A bat sleeps so much more than a massive mammal like a giraffe. And surely the giraffe would, I would imagine, is more intelligent than a bat. And of course, we are massively more intelligent than both of them combined over and over and over again. So there's no pattern there. There's absolutely no pattern. And then also... Another really interesting thing I learned is that not all species have REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep that I was talking about, that species that have REM sleep tend to be, tend to be mammals and birds. So actually a majority, a a good amount, I should say, of animals have REM sleep, but water animals Water mammals don't seem to have REM sleep. And 
there's some speculation as if unto if it's just because scientists haven't been able to figure out how to measure it in water mammals, uh, which is apparently, which that has been the case in the past in terms of other discoveries. You know, scientists thought that a particular animal didn't express something, whatever it is, and then it turned out 30, 40 years down the line that they end up discovering that they do. It's just different. It's just uh, differentially expressed or it's just uh, shown differently. <clears throat> so why would that be? Well, because REM sleep leads to muscle relaxation. I believe the term is atonia. I think that's right. So it leads to muscle relaxation. You can imagine if you're in the water and you need to propel yourself forward, how are you going to propel yourself forward when your brain has cut off, essentially cut off communication between your brainstem, your central nervous system to your peripheral nervous system, so your muscles can't react. So clearly that would uh, kill any aquatic animals because they wouldn't be able to uh, stay afloat. Now, moving to non-REM sleep, non-REM, non-rapid eye movement sleep, or deep sleep, came before REM sleep. And REM sleep may actually be a, an indication of the complexity of the brain, more advanced brains, because uh, mammals and birds have REM sleep. I may have misspoken a little bit earlier. Um, apparently other animals do not, but mammals and birds specifically do have REM sleep. And that <clears throat> may be because of a sign of a more advanced brain. So that's really cool. That's an intriguing thought. And our we tend to experience more REM sleep than other animals. Uh, so that could be, again, telling that not necessarily the amount of sleep doesn't necessarily correlate with the complexity of the brain or the ability of the brain, but the amount of REM sleep may have some sort of a, an association there. So really interesting to find that out. Then uh, Dr. Walker talks about recovering from sleep deprivation. So if you, let's say you stay up for 24 hours, you end up staying up for an entire night. You don't allow yourself to go to sleep. When you do go to sleep, the brain ends up prioritizing non-REM sleep over REM sleep. So that's pretty intriguing because that would imply that non-REM sleep has some sort of priority. It's more important for whatever reason. And I would imagine that's potentially because uh, he hasn't gone into this. I haven't looked into it, but maybe the clearing out of these different metabolites, like I talked about adenosine 
may occur during a non-REM sleep. So some of these key principles are necessary for for us to, to, to live. So if you don't get rid of these different metabolites, get rid of whatever else builds up over the day, then you end up putting yourself in a disadvantageous position. And REM sleep, if it is a newer version of sleep, it is a different type of sleep that does lead to the integration of new memories and dreaming and organization of thought and things of that nature, while that is incredibly important and especially important for a complex brain and, 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 and mind like the human mind, it may not be as important, and I would certainly argue for this, that it is not as important as getting rid of some of the basic biological needs during uh, potentially non-REM sleep. So that may be the reason why the brain prioritizes non-REM sleep over REM sleep after uh, sleep deprivation. Ah, yes, and then I quick went back to aquatic animals. I forgot I took a little bit of extra notes on this. So aquatic animals will fall into non-REM sleep, but only half of their brain will be sleeping while the other half will be awake. Because non-REM doesn't lead you to atonia, it doesn't lead to muscle relaxation, but you still can't be asleep. <laughs> If you're in the ocean, you need to you need to pay attention to your surroundings. So uh, only half of their brain is sleeping while the other half is still awake. Is still awake. So that's the way that they can keep themselves moving and therefore presumably keep themselves alive. But I'm certainly no aquatic animal expert and certainly... I'm sure there's a lot of variability between them. Oh, this was really cool. Uh, birds also exhibit this half-brain sleep. But when they're in a flock of birds, when they're multiple birds, they will sleep on a branch and on in a linear pattern, which, of course, I mean, a branch is going to be linear, typically. So... These birds are lined across this branch, and the birds in the middle go into complete sleep. But the two birds on the ends, one on the kind of inside, what you would call the proximal side of the, the, the bench, not bench, branch, and the distal, so the furthest away, so on either end, the bookends, essentially, of this grouping, this line of birds, those birds apparently also exhibit only this half-sleep. And it's extremely light sleep because they need half of their brain to keep a lookout in either direction. So they'll be they'll be turned 
one will be faced one direction, one will be faced the other direction, and they'll they'll sleep with half their brain active, and then they'll rotate, and the other half of their brain then that was awake then falls asleep, and the one that the part that was asleep then becomes awake. How cool is that? That is that's like a like an evolutionary trait that's based off of companionship. It's based off of being in a group as opposed to in isolation. I thought that was really, really cool. Now, humans display a somewhat similar system in that if they sleep in an unfamiliar environment, humans will display part of that hemispheric style of sleeping, wherein half of their brain, half of our brain, I don't know why I'm still saying there, like I'm... I'm not human, and I'm observing the humans. They, their brain, half of their brain will be in a lighter form of sleep that is that is actually allowing a little bit of attentiveness to the signals that are coming in, the sensations, the sounds and smells and feelings and things of that nature. And that's what allows... Uh, that's why you, you don't necessarily have the best night's sleep when you're sleeping in an environment where you may feel slightly uncomfortable, even if it is subconscious that you're not as comfortable. Like, Because when you walk in your home that you've lived in for 10 years, I mean, you feel completely comfortable, or at least you should. So in that environment, you sleep extremely well because everything's pretty predictable. But if you sleep in a hotel or something along those lines or at somebody's house that you've never slept at, that could, uh, could easily lead you to be at least less comfortable. I, w I wouldn't even necessarily say that you're like uncomfortable, but just less comfortable than the baseline of sleeping in your own bed. Another quick point is that food intake determines how long we sleep as well. So people who fast tend to sleep shorter periods of time as presumably the brain needs us to, to be awake longer to search for food. And certainly that's quite speculative, but uh, that does make some sense. If you're deprived of energy intake, then your body's thinking, well, all right, we got to we got to look for some stuff. We can't be hibernating here. We're not, we're not bears. Uh, oh yeah. And then two styles of sleep, a biphasic style of sleep, as opposed to a, I guess you would call it. Do you even call that a monophasic? Just regular sleep, a continuous amount of sleep. So there's evidence in pre-industrial cultures, uh, that, some people, and people still do this, some people will sleep the normal seven to eight hours in the, in, at night and then have an additional 30 to 45 minute nap 
and there may be a biological advantage to sleeping around noon because there seems to be a dip in wakefulness around that period of time. And that's called the postprandial dip. Now, here's where I would disagree with Dr. Walker. And I can say this because I'm actually educated on this topic. Postprandial dip doesn't, isn't necessary. I'm not saying he's, he's wrong, but I am saying that there are other factors that could account for this occurrence. Post, let me, I guess, let me clarify. Postprandial means after eating, after eating, you get sleepy. I think a lot of people experience that. And that makes sense. I'm not going to go into the whole physiology right now because I don't want to, you know, detract from talking about sleep. But the postprandial dip could be because of other things. It's not just because of its impact on the brain, uh, just because you hit around that time, 12 or 1 p.m., and suddenly your your brain just has this lull before it reactivates back to its uh, normal active self. So I don't know if this additional need, <clears throat> if there's really an additional need for a 30 to 45 minute nap, but, uh, and, and there may be, I, I don't know, but I, I certainly wouldn't say that it's necessarily a biological advantage at least. Uh, so that could just be because of food. If you had eaten at 10 or if you'd eaten at 3 p.m. and skipped the 12 or 1, you probably would experience the exact same thing. Um, again, because of all these different other factors that I'm not going to go into this time around. But typically, for the most part, other than some Europeans, I guess, like much, much uh, earlier on in our history, like Middle Ages, apparently some of them slept four hours or something like that and then woke up and stayed awake for like an hour or two where they just talked or read or just spent time together for one or two hours and then they would go back to sleep for the for the following four hours so that's happened as well but for the most part individuals sleep the full seven to eight hours in one go and then that's it they just stay awake interestingly we sleep less than primates so the great apes which we are somewhat related to uh they, we have far more REM sleep. I mentioned this earlier that we have far more REM sleep. 25% of our sleep is REM as opposed to them. Their amount of REM sleep is, I believe it was 9%, something along those lines. So highly, highly intelligent animals have dramatically decreased REM sleep compared to us. And I think, again, of course, this is a biased understanding at this point, but you're essentially, that's at least some more evidence that REM sleep is correlated with uh, having a more advanced brain or just thinking, yeah, just thinking about things in a more complex manner. The, the human potential is 
something I geek out about a lot. And finally, one final driving home point that I covered is Homo erect. Well, let me back up for a second. The great apes sleep on branches and trees 30, 40, 50 feet up in the air because they need to protect themselves from potential predators. Now, that leads to a problem. Again, back to the REM sleep problem. Where if you become atonic and you're 30 or 40 or 50 feet up and you fall out of that branch, you're in big trouble. You're going to injure yourself. You could die. Whatever the reason is, it's, uh, it's whatever ends up happening, it's, it's going to be bad. So uh, that may be a contributor as to why their REM sleep is decreased down to 9%. Uh, of their total sleep, while ours is 25%. Now, this is really, really interesting because Homo erectus was the first species to sleep on the ground as opposed to the great apes, like I mentioned, who slept in the trees. So, if that's the case, you could make an argument that the 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 allowance for us to sleep on the ground, you know, creating fire, creating tools, being able to defend ourselves differently other than just escaping into the trees, this, I hesitate to say, more relaxed state that we can achieve by sleeping on the ground. Granted, we're around predators, but, well, not that we are Homo erectus, but you understand what I'm saying. It's just very close in family that Homo erectus and eventually Homo sapien could eventually get to a point where when they're sleeping, they're sleeping, even if they sleep the same amount or they might sleep longer than a great ape, yet because they are sleeping supine or lying down that they don't have to worry about falling out of trees and technically once they've controlled fire and done things like that they would have better defenses against predators leading them to have the ability to allow their brain to go into REM sleep more and more and more and that could have propelled the growth of the brain. How freaking cool is that? Our just one habit change could have, and I'm certainly not predicting it. I don't think Dr. Walker is predicting it, but what if one action, one behavior change led to just just the, the gates opening a little bit more for one biological process, REM sleep, to then expand forward and take up more of our sleep. And that allowed our brain to develop and our, our thoughts and our cortex, our higher levels of brain mass matter to develop 
to a point where we got to where we are now. And what if we could track REM sleep going forward for tens of thousands of years into the future? And the more REM sleep we have, we see an incremental rise in REM sleep, or maybe the efficiency of REM sleep increases over time as our brain continues to develop and grow and become this massive part of differentiation between us and essentially every other living creature on planet Earth. Ooh, man, biology's crazy. Just like physics is, is crazy. Oh, that's... Uh, it's humbling. It's humbling to just think about that kind of stuff. Yeah, the human potential, the human mind. So let's, I was watching a documentary as well by Stephen Hawking on physics, obviously, trying to explain the world. And I don't know what it was called. The theory of everything, maybe. Uh, it was definitely something everything. It was an older documentary for sure. Uh, something like the early 2000s. But they interview a bunch of theoretical physicists. And that's such an odd profession. If you, if you really just sit back and think about it. The human potential, and you're going to hear me talk about this ad nauseum. <laughs> but the human potential is just absolutely incredible. It's, it's one of the things that gets me so excited to, I mean, just being human. I think that people don't put enough emphasis on it. I don't think people think about it enough, what humans can truly do. And theoretical physicists, I think, are a fantastic example of that because here you have individuals that just sit around and think. And that's it. They think. They just go on a imagination journey with their brain, just their brain creates this world. And they, I mean, of course, there's far more that goes into it. I don't want to like diminish it in any way. It's, there's mathematics that go into it. There's all, I mean, understanding of physics, like applicable physics, all kinds of different things go into it, but uh, chemistry, but these are individuals that essentially can just sit and think about something, a problem, with a background in all these mathematical principles and know what is real and what is not real and trying to develop theories as to how the world, everything fits into a particular worldview, like the first law of thermodynamics or the second law of thermodynamics, things like that. They are just thinking about it. That's it. They're not using tools necessarily other than just their brain is just, they are sitting on a couch like I am now, or they're sitting at a chair or they're at a coffee shop or just anything, anything. And but they're not. 
That's so, that's so crazy. Our imagination is this, I, I, I feel like I need to read so many more books with a bunch of big words in them just to be able to describe, to, to have the synonyms to describe how unreal that is. Just mind-blowing, just brilliant how the brain can can take you not your physical you but can take the 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 self that you really identify with if you believe in dualism the difference between mind and body takes the mind leaving the body takes the mind on a brilliant journey forward into itself and beyond it just takes you and it, it, it completely removes time. You can be sitting there for physically for like a minute, but go through hundreds of iterations of different thoughts in just that one minute. Or you could be sitting for six hours and it feels like five minutes because your brain, your mind has taken you on this the depth of thought, it, it genuinely feels like you are in a different place. You are not aware of what's around you. And th the intellect is something to be respected above almost anything about being human because it's something that's so unique. It is unique. It is the at least one of the chief defining features that defines us and separates us from other living creatures on this planet. Okay, that is where I'm going to leave that. You're totally going to hear that rant again at some point. But that's where I'm going to leave it. And with that... On to next week. See ya.